Hello, and welcome to episode four of season two of Relay Essay, a connected conversation about student affairs in Canada. Each person I interview gives me some names of who I should interview next, passing the baton along from interview to interview, hence the title Relay Essay. And if you're listening to this, you've probably figured out that Essay stands for student affairs. I'm so excited to start this new relay with Tim Fricker from Mohawk College. I remember the very first time I met Tim. It was at a Residence Life conference and Tim was delivering a presentation. Who knew that almost 14 years later I would be sitting down with him for a podcast interview? In addition to his role at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario, Tim is a part-time doctoral student at OISE at the University of Toronto. On top of that, he is a husband and a father to a young son, so you can understand how grateful I was that he was able to carve out some time to be interviewed. I'm hoping that this interview is the first in a long line of discussions with folks doing excellent work in Canada's colleges. We had a great time chatting, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's listen. Adam Tewin, what are you doing? Who will you talk to today? It's Relay Essay. We're recording. We're recording. This is happening. Um, so for our listeners... Uh, can you please state your name? Your uh, full name. My full name is Tim Fricker. <laughs> is it not Timothy? <laughs> it is Timothy Stephen Fricker. Okay. But it is Tim Fricker Tim for Fricker. everybody <laughs> Um And let's start at the very, very, very beginning. Where are you from? Uh, where were you born? Burlington, Ontario. Burlington, Ontario, Canada. And where are you currently employed? At Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario. And what do you do there? I am the Director of Student Success Initiatives. What does that mean? Well, I like to think of it as I'm responsible for initiatives, not broadly student success, which obviously (laughs) I myself cannot make a huge impact on. Maybe small impact, but let's talk about the initiatives. (laughs) So what initiatives are under your portfolio? Uh, Well, it's easier to describe the programs and services. Um, which would be student success advising. For many, that would be academic advising. Um, The Learning Support Center, which has peer tutoring and supplemental instruction programs. Um, We have something called the McCasis Resource Center, which is an acronym for uh, the Mohawk College Association of Continuing Education Students, which is now defunct, but the space is still available for CE students. Uh, We just offer a wide variety of student services to uh, population, uh, ministry-funded first-generation project, uh, student and graduate employment, which is basically career development or career services for our non-co-op students, and then some campus-wide research initiatives, all related to retention and student success. Whew! Wow, and in your spare time, you're uh, I'm a dad husband, and a dad, a husband. and a doc student. Yes, that too. <laughs> That doesn't sound like a lot of spare time. Um, okay, let's go back to high school, Tim. And you're making the decision to go to university. What did that look like? That's an interesting question. Well, my grades were not that good. I applied to six universities. I got into one. <laughs> and so I ended up going to the University of So that of made the decision for you, <laughs> That yeah. made the decision for me. Um, But I also took a bunch of courses that would have 
sent me in a very different route, which were all the sciences and the maths, which I realized a little bit too late that was not my um, forte in high school. And so gotcha. that limited my options in terms of, I thought I was going to be a meteorologist and do atmosphere and climate at York University. And so most of the places that I applied to those science programs did not accept me. Fair enough. You could have been a weather person? Something like that. <laughs> that would have been amazing. I could have used some more career planning earlier in high school. Fair enough. And then, so you went to Windsor. I went to Windsor. You became a Lancer. That's correct. What was that like? Uh, Loved it, actually. It was a very natural fit very early on. Um, So I I enjoyed living in Windsor. And you got involved with residence life, right? I did. I did. Because I remember the very first time we met, I don't know if you remember this time, I bring it up every once in a while, okay. it was at the Residence Life Conference. Yes. You were presenting, I went to your session. Yes. And it was something about shoes. Yes. Do you remember this presentation? I remember this presentation very well. Um, the interesting part, so that was my second, that would have been my second year as an RA. Okay. Uh, that presentation was done with uh, Katie Dupuy, who is still uh, my best friend. Um, so that's interesting and it was called What Shoe Fits and it was really taking the concept of true colors or personality dimensions which many people know about and putting them into the concept of shoes or what hat do you wear or how do you um, react in certain types of situations amazing so Obviously, I went to your session, changed your life. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, no, clearly had an impact on me. But so you've been, you were an RA for a couple of years, and then you come come to the end of your time of your undergraduate career, and you face another another big decision. What is your next step after Windsor? Well, so I got to Windsor as a undecided major, ended up in geography, loved geography. Um, decided I wanted to be a teacher, applied to Teachers College, got into Teachers College. At the same time, I was applying to professional roles in residence life. Um, And so I did the interview process, and I interviewed a bunch of places, interviewed out west, and I got two offers out west at the same time. And so it kind of, I took that as a message that it was probably time to think about res life as a profession and do that. And the West was calling me, so I moved out to Calgary and worked at Mount Royal College, which is now Mount Royal University, and put the Teachers College thing on hold because I always thought, well, I could always come back to Teachers College. But res life is kind of that thing that you're going to do it, you're going to do it now. Yeah. And so how long were you at Mount Royal? Uh, Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yes. And so you transplanted from Burlington to Windsor and then from Windsor... To Calgary. To Calgary. And how was that? Um, exciting, nerve-wracking. The interview was my first time on an airplane. Oh, wow. Like, all of those, you know, I studied geography, loved the mountains, loved courses like glacial geomorphology and all that stuff that helps you understand the mountains and the landscape, and it was my first time in the mountains. Hmm. So that was um, a lot of fun. And we're going to come back to this whole idea of mountains, because I feel like that's a theme that runs through your life, Sir Fricker. Um, so, um, who did you meet at Mount Royal? Who was there? Um, well, the person that hired me was Joel Lynn, who's now the Executive Director of Student Services at UVic in right. Victoria. Yeah. Um, and he was a Laurier 
guy before he's that, right? A board, he's a, he was a uh, Lusu president for right. a period of time. Yeah. Okay. Um, Matt Murko was my sort of co-res life coordinator in the first year. Uh, he left, came back home. He now works, uh, he's like a marathon runner and in, in works for like, I don't know who he works for now, New Balance, those kinds of things. Very successful. But uh, Natasha Lopak, or now Natasha Reynolds, who's still out there, um, was my co-RLC in the second and third year. That's a pretty amazing team. Yeah, it was good. And what did you learn about presence life or student affairs in that time? I think the, you know, I give a lot of credit to Joel and Matt and Natasha. And Joel left uh, maybe a year and a half into my time there. And Steve Fitterer came in who has recently been promoted to the Vice President of Student Services at Mount Royal. And I, I learned a lot of my foundations there, okay. right, about assessment and evaluation um, and how important that was, about community building and how important that was, about the role that counseling can play, because, you know, Janet Miller, who many folks that go to caucus know a lot about, right. um, she was there and a key mentor and, and a great um a partner in the work that we did and so many counselors and people at Mount Royal that many folks would see at, at caucus still to this day so I think I just learned a lot of foundations there because mm-hmm. it wasn't a huge res life program or school but it was it was uh, big enough to have many of the normal challenges that you would see but small sure. enough that I could really sink my teeth into something mm-hmm. and make a whole lot of mistakes too probably yeah and I think that's one of the gifts of having a team like the folks that you're describing is that you can make the mistakes and be there for one another and kind of recover and totally have a resilient team in that sense. So two and a half years in Calgary, then what happened after that? Well, then I met you more formally. More formally? Yeah. Because you were coming to the University of Guelph. That's right. To, to do your turn, as most people, some folks... Yes, <laughs> to, to, to actually um, take your seat for a little while. That's right, in Mountain Hall. In Mountain Hall. And how long did you do that for? I forget. Two years, exactly two years. And so I made the transition mid-year. So one of the decisions I made mm. when I was ready to leave Mount Royal was I knew I wanted to get back to Ontario to be closer to home. I had sort of done my time there, but didn't do a good job of setting roots in the city yeah. for me. And so, mm-hmm. I'm like, so I want to come back. And I wanted to work at a larger, more established institution with student services. Sure. And so, you know, when Guelph posted the job mid-year, I also knew that there's probably going to be a smaller applicant pool and I'm going to have a better shot of getting a job at the great res life program that University of Guelph has. And sure. so that's how that happened. I was I started in January. Wowzers. And what, so it, was there any differences that you noticed when you moved from like the Windsor program to a cap, like a program in Calgary and then back to Ontario? Was there any regional differences or any kind of nuances about how things played out? Or are the fundamentals the fundamentals no well, matter what institution you're so, at? So I would say yes to both questions. Sure. So, so the fundamentals are the same. Cultures are different, size of institutions are different, um, and histories of the programs are mm. different. So University of Windsor was, was quite well established in its Res Life program and what it did and how it did it. Right. Um, and so there's really lively you know, student government in both the residents and outside, and all of that worked well. That was not established at Mount Royal. So okay. you could, and there was 
a huge, just the year or two before I got there, they had built 600 new beds. Okay. And more than doubled its, its residence accommodations. So it was in this sort of building stage and recreating. So I could do a lot of things from scratch. Um, but then you go to the University of Guelph where it's like, it's established and you're going from a management team of two to a management team of 10 or 12, however you want to count it. Yeah. And so how do you create something from scratch? Um, that was an interesting lesson. How to, how to manage and work with a team that is so large. And bring yourself and your talents sure. to a system that's kind of already yeah. shaping it, especially coming in mid-year too, right? Like sure. Absolutely. Oh. Well, and this is kind of setting up the other question I have, which is one of the conversations that has come up about this podcast and about conversations in general is that sometimes we leave out the conversation about colleges. Sometimes we can be super university-focused. We can be super Ontario, Southern Ontario-focused. Um, but what, like, as someone who has now, in the last couple of years, moved over to Mohawk, um, how are your how are you, how are you adjusting to that? Is that super different? What are your feelings? Well, I I love oh, sorry, I skipped out the whole CLC step. We can go well, back to that we too. Can, we can go back <laughs> to campus living centers because I think that's an important part. Tell me everything. Um, but I'll what I'll say about actually let's talk about CLC first because I'll talk about the colleges because I made a decision two years after being at the University of Guelph that I was really really ready for a change and I had applied for a few. Um, of those next step jobs, right. like the, the manager position or the associate director position. Sure. And I came in second place once or twice. And so I got great feedback, but it just, I wasn't the right fit. Right. And so I was, you know, you're five years in the profession, you're ready to do something different. I was most of the way through my master's program. Um, I was, got the itch. Um, so CLC had, I applied to a job and it was kind of a misfit, but then they kept talking to me. They had an ownership change and they kept talking to me. So I talked to them Yeah. and we had several months where we were kind of interviewing each other and they sort of recreated this role of director of residence life and the student experience. And so I decided to take a shot at it and it was a very different compensation model. It was a very different approach in a space where some people told me, Tim, if you go to the private sector, no one's gonna ever hire you back. It had a terrible reputation. It did. Like, especially in the in the housing, it was kind of this, like, weird, like, even at conferences, people who are from CLC were kind of, like, I don't know, there was, like, spoke about in hushed tones. Like, it was kind of this weird taboo, almost. And it came from a place of uh, misunderstanding, no understanding, and if I could give grief to our profession as a whole, is I don't know how hard people tried to understand. Sure. And so... You know, when we take when we think about where we're at today and all of the social injustices and the things that are happening in the world that are bringing to light how important it is to understand everybody and understand the other, if I dare to say it like that, we need to reach out and learn to understand. Because when I started thinking at Campus Living Centers, well, who do they serve? First-year students living right. in residence. And so they deserve, in colleges for the most part, Right. Okay. And so they deserve the same opportunities in programming that the other students are getting at these in-house residence life and sure. housing programs. So for me, it was more about, no, 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 I think I have something to offer. Yeah. They have something to offer me. And I think we can offer something to the students that deserve this level of programming and support, something different. And mm. so 
I said, forget it. And people aren't trying to understand. I was trying to understand. And that was that sort of made up my tenure at Campus Living Centers, is trying to engage with the profession in all the ways that they already knew that I could and would. Sure. Um, and say, this is not evil. These folks are not trying to come and take the University of Guelph program and outsource it. Right. They don't have the capacity to. Yeah. Like, it's not possible. They could build your building. Right. But if you don't want that, that's fine. But, in, but we can learn from each other and share. And so that's kind of where I came from with the CLC part. And I, f- I feel like, and I haven't been in housing for many years, but I yeah. feel like there, that marked a bit of a shift. Like, I feel like CLC folks are participating more in, like, OCO and caucus. and. Well, and that has a lot to do with, I think, stuff that I started to do. But then uh, people like Stephanie Muletaller, yeah. who, who joined me while I was there. She's at Trent now, right? Yeah, she's at Trent now. Yeah. And then Greg, Greg Hum, that is doing that work and these are people that were that knew res life and were part of the community within and so when people that are known move to campus living centers and then are trying to partner back there's some sort of shared understanding that hey we have similar values here yeah um so it could work that's interesting it doesn't feel like a like a dirty word right anymore it shouldn't or maybe it is in some circles that i'm not part of but i would uh, encourage those people to think and give you a call Learn a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then, and I recall hearing about your experience, which I remember you enjoying quite a bit, but I also remember you spending quite a bit of time driving around to the different sites. Yes. So you're kind of like working out of your car. Yeah. Um, And was that one of the things that maybe compelled you to look for something a little bit more? Well, it was twofold. It was one is that I wanted something a little bit more stable. And at that point in time, I was engaged, um, thinking about settling down, uh, with my now wife, um, and you know where are we going to set our roots and all that stuff. But it was also about I think I had made as much progress as I could make sure. in the three and a half years that I was there, and I was ready for a change. I also knew that given the negative discourse and perceptions in res life and in student affairs broadly, the longer I stayed there, the harder it would be to get back into student affairs or res life proper. And there, was there kind of a cap at CLCs in terms of where you could go in terms of like a student affairs type role? Um, no, I probably could have continued to stay there and grow, but it was more about what's next. Right. And it was, and so that's where Mohawk College posted a role, and I, Mohawk College was one of the client institutions. The dean of students knew me. I made sure she knew I was interested, and and you know tried to figure out how do I make that leap. Because in the college system, there's far more trust in the private sector than I would suggest there is in the university system. Mm, because there's already a relationship. Yeah, and a partnership. And, Correct. And a relationship. Can I go back to one second real quickly? Because I feel like you had mentioned that you had come to the, to the time when you felt like you had kind of done all you could in that role or kind of taken it as far as you could. I feel like that is um, such a... Uh, a a difficult place in terms of reflecting on where you're at like how did you come to that what were some of the indicators that you were at that point because I think for some folks some folks stick around for far too long some folks stick around like maybe um, too, leave too early I p- other people have described me and I'm using other people's words not my own um, to say that I have a lot of courage to make difficult decisions mm-hmm. so if I'm thinking about that 
Um, I've never been scared to do something risky. I've never been scared to speak up. I've never been scared to say, this isn't working for me, I'm going to do something different. Right. And so that's, so for me, that's easy. For others, I think that's very difficult. Right. I thrive on change. Many do not. Right. So um, that's probably where it is. But just listening to myself and knowing, and in my career, every move I've made has been incredibly strategic, but it's also been about my you know, my motivation in my role, my energy in my role right. has depleted. So the combination of strategically it's time for a change and I'm listening to my body and my body saying I need to do something different. Right. It's those two things that have been the reason for just about every career move I've made. Hmm. I just feel like I do a lot of informational interviews that people ask type questions on how do you make those decisions. So I think it's great to hear your insights. Thank you. Um, okay, so you get to Mohawk. You're in the college sector, yeah. kind of more formally. Yeah. How Was there, I guess if you had already kind of eased your way in through the CLC experience, it wasn't like a total culture shock like I've heard some other folks describe when they transition from a university to a college. No, but it still is. And okay. so the, the, um, the college student is different, and they're purposefully different. They serve in many ways, a different part of the population right? Um, and serve them in different ways, in different kinds of programs that are two and three year credentials or grad certificates and those kinds of things. So the students are different and the faculty are different and the administrators are different. Um, it is a very different environment. You cannot use the same programs and approaches that you would use in uh, a residential campus or, or a big institution like a U of T or McMaster or whatnot that you would use at a, at a Mohawk college. So what, if you were um, hiring someone and they're just transplanted from, say, a university and we're just starting about Mohawk college, day one, what would be one of your best like tips to say, okay, your adjustment might be different because of all these contextual differences. Here's my best tip to help you succeed in your role. Well, I'll give you two. The first one is one that could work in any institution. And most people... Uh, most team members, when they hear a new person come in and say, well, at X school where I just was. I did that we my did whole think, first year. We, <laughs> and we've all done it. Yeah. I've done it as well. So, well, we do this. And think that you can parachute a program or service from one place to yeah. another and that it's going to work for that culture or that population. And I think that's a, um, a mistake that everybody needs to make. Sometimes it works, but in many ways it doesn't. Um, and that's a very easy way to turn off your new team members. Totally. Yeah. So the first point is, is don't do that. Yeah. Um, the second point is be as curious as humanly possible. Right. Be curious about the students. Be mm -hmm. curious about the culture. Be curious about understanding why do we do things this way here? There might be really good reasons. There might be really silly reasons. Regardless, that is the culture. That's the context. So how do you work with it? Yeah. And how do you take the best practices that you know and the principles that are the foundation of those best practices and apply the principles to the new work that you're going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And suspending the judgment part, I think, because I think... As you, long as possible. Yeah. There's a good quote, I can't remember if I mentioned on the podcast before, but different cultures are not failed versions of your own. They're just different manifestations of the human spirit, which mm. I think works on an intercultural level, yeah. but also if you're moving from campus to campus or college to university or vice versa, going in with that sense of this is different manifestation of 
this context and I'm here to learn yeah and be of service to it I guess no that's great um, I have two three more questions and then the rapid fire stuff so we talked a little bit about mountains mm-hmm. you moved to Calgary loved the mountains deep love of them from your love of geography then you move back to Ontario no mountains Blue Mountain doesn't count. No. The mountain in Hamilton doesn't count. (laughs) Um, Is this where, were you trying to fill this need when you started getting into the mountain climbing? Tell me where that started. Um, So my sister lived with me for a period of time when I was out in Calgary. Okay. And she was also, when I first got there, working um, as a summer student and in Lake Louise mm. and so she took me out on some of my first hikes in the mountains and I just loved it I loved how your two feet and a little bit of effort and a couple hours could get you to such amazing places right points of view um, and you don't have to go very far or very high to, to get some of those things so the the natural highs that I mm. got from the effort and the feeling of accomplishing something and yet getting up high in the mountains and just the absolute peace and quiet and silence was, um, it was like a drug. It was amazing. Nice. And so I loved it. Um, and so I kept doing it inch by inch, doing a little bit more and joined the Alpine Club, Club of Canada and joined some trips on my own and, you know, ended doing a bunch of summits with people I didn't know. Yeah. Um, which was really cool. What, um, so what is the most... Because you've gone to Kilimanjaro. Tell me what is your, like, your favorite accomplishment in terms of climbing or your favorite experience? Well, when, when people talk about um, success, they, they'll talk about the journey or the process, and it's not really the outcome. And I think mountaineering is very much the same. Like, it, it really is about that. It's about, to quote somebody that I dare not quote in terms of um, a singer, but it's it's about the climb. It's about the work. Yes. Right? And that, that... So my biggest accomplishment is more about the preparation and the planning for and the whole process of, of doing it. And the so journey. when I came back to Guelph and when I was leaving Guelph, I took an opportunity strategically before I started the work at Campus Living Centers um, to say... I had been saving up some money and said, I'm going to Kilimanjaro before I start working for you. And that is a deal breaker. If you're not okay with waiting <laughs> another week or two for me, yeah. um, I can't come work for you. And so they said, okay. And right. I did the Kilimanjaro thing. Oh. I, that sounds amazing. That sounds incredible. And it also, I never would have thought, my assumption about mountaineering would, would have been that it's all about the summit and all about getting to that point and kind of the achievement. But to hear you reflect on the process and the journey and the preparation being just as if not to put it in really scary terms uh something like and i'll probably get the statistic wrong but it paints the right picture is that 90 percent of deaths on everest occur on the on the uh descent Mm. meaning a lot of people make it but they spend all their energy getting up and then they're so tired so floored that by the time they start moving down they have an accident they get sick or something happens you can't just get on a toboggan <laughs> I'm sure some have tried. <laughs> I think I have a lot to learn. I should have uh, did a little bit more googling around mountain climbing. Um, that's amazing. And I, I was going to ask if there are any connections about your mountaineering experience and kind of your work in student affairs. But I'm already starting to see that there's some pretty great connections when you talk about student success initiatives. 
you've already defined success as being not necessarily one kind of outcome, but kind of more of a process. It is a, it's such a process because to, to actually make a meaningful change to name your outcome, a student engagement metric, a student involvement metric, a retention metric, to, to graduation rates, um, you need uh, an unbelievable process over many years and a culture to be developed on your campus uh, that embraces this as important and systematically puts initiatives and programs and services in place that are supporting the students that need the most help. Right. Um, that Which is not a cookie cutter thing, right? No. Yeah. No. And so that's the process mm. that is really important. And if you build that process years down the road, you'll achieve the outcome. But it may be after I leave. Right. Yeah, it's a long game. It's a long game. Wow. Um, so you're at Mohawk, you've completed your master's, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to do my PhD. How's that going? <laughs> well, today we are sitting in a study room at Oise yeah. because you and I both finished night class. <laughs> I am in my fifth of six classes in my PhD, oh, and wow. this is a statistics class. Your brain is remarkably nimble after a statistics class. <laughs> Thank you so much for making this time. Oh. And so... My sense, too, is that you're kind of zeroing in on this notion of advising. That seems to be where some of your writing is going, or at least where... I know you came and did a keynote at our, one of our advising conferences at UFT. Yeah. Is, that, is that accurate? What, is, well, what are you zeroing in on? I'm zeroing in on that mostly because it's convenient, because I oversee advising at Mohawk. Right. And I've learned a lot about it over the last four and a half years. Um, so in terms of practicality, it makes the most sense sure. for me to focus on... Uh, a retention outcome and advising and trying to tease some of that apart in my dissertation. And what what secrets and mysteries can you reveal? What insights would you share with us in terms of... Well, none yet because I haven't done any uh, interesting data collection for my dissertation yet because that process hasn't started. But I've been involved in a number of research projects um, and spent a lot of time in the literature as well. I don't think there's any great secret other than um, that advising is more commonly placed at the center of a collection of programs and services that as a whole can make an impact on student success. Mm. Independently, maybe not, but as a whole, mm. um, when you start placing all of these, these supports um, together they can make a difference and so advising is more commonly placed in that collection as an important piece of that collection right mm -hmm. um, and one of my recent books that I read by Braxton and a whole bunch of other authors about rethinking college student retention created two uh, theories of student retention one for residential campuses and oh, okay. one for commuter campuses and the effect of advising on student success or retention on the commuter campuses was great. And so one of the key programs or services that him and his team put out was that academic advising programs are important. In residential campuses, what would be your guess as the most important program or service? 
outside of the classroom to support student success. Probably residence life program? That is correct. Right. So to me, there's a really interesting thing there about my experience in terms of res life and academic advising to understand what are the most important experiences outside of the classroom that we can design and ensure are supportive for student success. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was some big reflection for me when I was reading that book. Wow. I cannot wait to see where you take this. That's going to be really exciting. Um, My last question before we get into the rapid fire questions are... How old, how old is your kid? This isn't the question. This is the lead up to the question. Okay. How old is your is your child, your offspring? Um, my son, Liam, is three and a half. And so when Liam gets to come to the time when Liam needs to make a decision about life after high school, what do you think the landscape will look like in terms of higher education? What predictions would you make if you had to look into a crystal ball? Well, the first thing I would hope is that... Um, public discourse does not um, make university the default choice. Right. Is that we're a little bit more open-minded about the um, the types of programs. Sure. So whatever Liam wants to do is whatever he can do. If he wants to go to college, go to college. If he wants to go to university, go to university. My instinct is, because this is happening already, is more and more students are going to both. Whether you go to college first or you go to university first, it doesn't really matter, I would argue. Um, but you're probably going to end up at both. Sure. Interesting. All right. We'll have to play this podcast back, podcast back <laughs> yeah. for Liam when it comes time for him to make the decision. All right. I've got about nine rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? I'm not sure. <clears throat> um, Tim Fricker. What is your favorite office supply? Your favorite office, I don't know, thing to order from Grand and Toy? Uh, there's a certain kind of pen. I only use one kind of pen. I oh. forget the name of it, but I have tons of them. Okay. Well, we should find the name. We, should, we could get a sponsor <laughs> for this podcast. There's a certain kind of pen. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. If you were to make a time capsule for what student affairs looks like on Mohawk in 2016, what things would you put in that time capsule? Oh... <laughs> probably throw a few PowerPoint presentations in there and say, here's the summary. Here's the summary. <laughs> here's the summary. I don't know. Amazing. Um, if you could go back to um, a first-year Tim who just moved into residence at Windsor, what would you tell him? Oh, uh, I think it's something I still tell myself now. Calm down a little bit and listen more. Mm. Close your mouth. <laughs> um, as someone who is working in higher ed and also, uh, you know, Um, doing additional studies this is probably a good question what is the buzzword that you hate the most and what is a buzzword that you use the most reluctantly um well i think people use the buzzword of student success without defining what student success is Mm -hmm. and so that's probably my answer to both Okay. Because you have to use it. I have to use it, and we want to talk about it. Right. But how do we actually define it? Mm. And so, if I'm going to hijack your lightning round for a minute and just say, I would argue that the way we define student success should be more around how students independently, individually define their own success. What are their goals? And how do we, as colleges or universities, track? how they're doing against their own goals as opposed to tracking employment and retention and 
Like, who cares if they change programs? Those are our like, success metrics, not th- necessarily not theirs. theirs. And so if we really want to change the discourse, stop talking about student retention and let's talk about student persistence. Retention is something we do. We retain a student. Persistence is something the student does. And so their success should be about their goals. Oh, gosh, you're good. Um, what would folks be surprised to learn about you? I'm not sure. We can come back we'll to come that. We'll come back to that. Um, the best meal you ever had? Um, probably at my wedding, even though I don't remember eating it. <laughs> <laughs> Just the context yeah, and the love, was good, yeah. um, What was the last thing you uh, binged on Netflix, if you binge on Netflix? Um, um, House of Cards. Well played. And the last question, um, which we'll wrap up, which you knew was coming, is who should we interview next and why and what should we ask them? Well, so I would encourage you to interview somebody again that may or may not have a college perspective or can understand colleges a little bit differently. So um, one of the names and the other part that we didn't talk too much about today is just the importance of assessment, evaluation and research. Um, I tweeted out an article not long ago about um, a student affairs practitioner who moved into the academic side mm-hmm. and really started understanding how important it is for us to justify our work with right. real data in ways that academics will appreciate. So um, I think we understand that better. So somebody like Trisha Seifert, yeah, who I've heard of her, who <laughs> is a lovely, lovely human being, has done a lot of research in understanding. Uh, systems that support student success, but also the differences between colleges and universities, and mm-hmm. I think how college affects students is a great text for people as Hot well. Off so the presses, I would three. say she would be somebody that I would encourage you to talk to. The other person I just saw today, Amy Gockel, was just appointed to the uh, board of directors for Caucus, and so she spent a lot of time working at Seneca, and has also worked and is now working at the Lassonde School of Engineering yeah, at York University. At York, yeah, and so I think. I also know she has interesting perspectives of the potential role of student affairs and services that may or may not be as we currently see it in terms of the important connection to the academic side of the house. So I think those are interesting perspectives that I think your podcast listeners would appreciate. Totally. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. This was so great. I always love talking to you. So thank you so much for making the time. And um, I hope that you can get home and I'm sure Liam is already asleep. He's totally asleep. He's totally asleep. asleep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Adam. So there you have it. A frank and honest discussion with the one and only Tim Fricker. I think if we weren't about to get kicked out of the library, the interview could have gone on way longer. Tim is on the Twitter, and I encourage you to connect with him. His handle is at Tim Fricker, T-I-M-F-R-I-C-K-E-R. I am on the Twitter, too. Connect with me and let me know what you think about the podcast. My handle is at Adam Kewen, A-D-A-M-K-U-H-N. Use the hashtag RelaySA to follow along with the discussion. Before I go, I just want to remind you about the Relay Essay podcast challenge. I'm asking you to think about what kind of podcast you would make about student affairs in Canada. Once you have your idea sorted out, record it on your phone in a one-minute voice note and send it my way. Once I get them, I will put them all together in a very special episode of Relay Essay featuring you and your ideas. Try to get them into me by the end of March 2017 and make sure to include your name. Relay Essay theme music is written and performed by Adrian Ross. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.